Well, good morning again, church. I'm loving these little videos, these sermon illustrations, or, or these kind of little segues before our announcement time. And that one in particular, it really hits home in our current environment. And I love how we just saw 200 faces, and I love how how we can look at that from the way the world wants us to see that all of those different words race color income gender all those different things or we can see things how god sees people and he sees people made in his image he sees people listen to this jesus sees people in need of his love in need of his grace and willing to offer it When we read through the gospel accounts, it's amazing to see the people that Jesus showed love towards. Think about this. He loved lepers. Those were the outcasts of the outcasts in his day. He loved criminals. He prayed for the one. He accepted the one on the cross who was there because he was guilty. He loved the adulterer, the one caught in adultery. Remember, he has an interaction with her. He doesn't pick up a stone and cast her. He says, go and sin no more. He loves the Pharisees. He was willing to meet with Nicodemus. And he's willing to save the Apostle Paul or or Joseph of Arimathea. He hung out with tax collectors. Again, those that were despised. Why? Because he saw people as human beings. He saw people in the depth of their need for a savior. He saw people the way that, that he's seen us. And so I just, I love that word. I love that encouragement for all of us. In such a turbulent world, we still have the remedy. Jesus is the remedy. And we can demonstrate his love to those people around us, one interaction at a time. Right? I love to think about it. It can be a daunting task to think, how am I going to change the world? But we can change somebody's world, one person at a time. Somebody shared the gospel with me. Somebody shared the gospel with you. And you know what happened? It changed my world. It changed my entire world. And so we can do that one person at a time. So just be encouraged. Don't be deterred by the craziness of the chaotic world around us. Be encouraged that God has put people in your heart and he's equipped you and gifted you to reach them. So just an exhortation there i'm preaching before i'm preaching well exodus 17 again we're, we're in part seven now of this series called who is god and in case you're wondering how many parts are there is this series ever going to end now, i hope you're not thinking that like it's ever going to end but you're, you're maybe you're wondering how many parts to this series are there listen there's just one more next week we'll wrap up this series who is god with the final part the final event that god is is wrapping up in this time but i want to remind you why are we in this series at all why are we talking about who is god And we're talking about it because this is what God is showing to his people. We're in this incredible little window in between chapters 14 and 18 where God is purposely, slowly leading his people into circumstances to teach them just that, who he is. And it's beautiful. We've been talking about six events and one song. That's what takes place in between this tiny little window from the time God delivers his people out of Egypt to bringing them to Mount Sinai where he's going to show them his law. But it's beautiful. It's because before God wants us to do something, he says, I want you to know who I am. We can translate it all to say, you know what? What we can all understand about God through this section of scripture is that he is relational. Friends, I want you to know that God is relational. He wants to have a relationship with you. And know that this isn't just the beginning of this. This isn't something new. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman created to have relationship with God. He used to walk with them in the garden. Think about how amazing that was. But then even after, there's a man named Enoch. It's said of Enoch, he walked with God. And then Abraham, Abraham is called the friend of God. And then Jacob, who's renamed Israel, he wrestled with God. And now we're talking and following the life of Moses, who talked with God. But all different aspects to say God is relational. You and I here as Christians, God speaks to us now through his son. He has given us his spirit so we can understand the thoughts that come from God and understand the word of God. Why? Because he's relational. He wants to 
to know us and have a personal relationship with us. And that's what God is doing, setting up here as he walks his people through these different events. Now, through each moment, through each circumstance or trial or suffering or difficulty, God has been revealing some other aspect of himself to his people. Through an impassable sea, through bitter waters, through hunger and thirst, God has been showing his people over and over and over. He can be trusted. He's dependable. He's faithful. Where God guides, he provides. He keeps his promises. And so here we are in event number five this morning. The the next thing that God is showing his people And what we're going to see this morning is he's teaching his people, listen to this, how to wage war and win. The sub-theme of our message this morning is how can we wage war and win, right? We all want to know that. We're saying, yes, please tell me good. You're tuned in. That's what we're going to find out. But we point all this out because the truth needs to be told. Battles are going to come. Christians, battles are going to come. There are going to be difficulties. There are going to be attacks. There are going to be challenges that we will run into in our faith. And we need to know how we can contend against those, how we can wage that war and win, how we can press into the Lord. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. It's a spiritual battle. There's spiritual warfare. These terms are going to make more sense as we continue. But we have a great text in front of us to start to unpack this. So let's see what's going on. We're going to read one verse, one short little verse. It will set the stage for what we're going to talk about here. So picking up where we left off last week, Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, says this. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Raphidim. Now stopping there, we're going to talk about this for a few minutes. told you, just a short verse, and we'll kind of set the stage. But this is the same place where God led his people last week. Raphidim, remember, it means place of rest, place of refreshment. And we remember at first it wasn't, but then it became that because God provided water from a rock to be able to provide for his people, be their, their hydration. And then we learned that that rock is Christ and it's living water and a bunch of other cool stuff last week. But God made this place a place of rest. That water from the rock, it became an oasis in the desert, a pool and a fountain, streams in the desert. And so after his people are going to have rest for a time, rehydrate, here comes the next trial. Unprovoked, Amalek comes and fights with Israel. Now we're wondering kind of right now, well, who's Amalek? Where did this fight come from? What is all this about? I'm saying, hold on to those thoughts. We're going to answer all of those. But I want us to actually set the stage a little bit more, and I want us to notice two main differences about event number five, about this next trial that Israel is being led into by God. I want us to see these two main differences and understand them before we start answering the question and continue this narrative. So difference number one that I want you to just mentally note or or take note, notice this is an external struggle this time. This attack is coming from the outside. If you go back and you look at the previous events when they're at Mara, even when they're at the Red Sea, yes, the Egyptians are coming, yes, but the biggest issue is how do we get past the sea? Right, And then at Mara, the bitter waters. How are we supposed to drink water that is bitter? And then when they go to the wilderness of sin and at Rephidim, how are we supposed to satisfy our hunger? How are we supposed to satisfy our thirst? And every time, those were internal struggles because what they needed to do was wrestle out their own faith. They needed to work out their faith with fear and trembling. Did God promise that we were going to go to Mount Sinai, eventually the promised land? Yes, he did, which means we're not going to die here, which means this isn't the end. But in those internal struggles, every single time we had them question Moses, contend with Moses, question God, doubt their faith, and start complaining. Every single time. That is one of the things that happens when we find ourselves in an internal battle. We're working out our faith. We're working out, is God faithful? Is God true? Is is God's word something to be trustworthy? And we need to work that out. But that is not the situation here. This is an external struggle. And as you read through these eight verses, you're not going to see anyone contending with Moses. You're not going to see anyone doubting God. You're not going to see anyone complaining at all, which is beautiful, 
But it's because it's an external battle. When an external attack comes, you know what that does? That doesn't divide that unifies. When a pandemic comes, when crazy attacks come from the outside of the church, it unifies the church. It purifies the church. It's the internal battles that are the most concerning, the most dangerous to a church because the internal things can divide. Remember last week when they wanted to stone Moses, right? That's what happens when an internal battle starts to come. But this is different. So just know that the one of the main differences here is it's an external battle. It's coming from the outside. Amalek is attacking them. But main difference number two that I really want you to catch here is this is the first battle that the people are going to have to physically engage in, right? Not just Moses crying out to the Lord this time. There are going to be the people who are going to have to engage in this battle along with Moses. In fact, we're going to see three different names that are, that are well, Aaron's not new to us. We'll see two new names that are new to us, but four different names are going to be given, including Moses, about what it takes to wage this war and win. And understand, there's a whole lot of other people whose names the Lord knows, but we're not given in this book. But there's a lot of people that need to come together because they have to engage in this battle. They're not supposed to just sit in their tent eating manna while all of this just takes takes care of itself. That's not how you wage the war and win. That's not what's being exemplified for us in the text. And that's a main difference because notice that's not what happened in, in the Red Sea. That's not what happened when the people were in Egypt. Remember, we have nowhere in the text when the people are in Egypt, God's saying through Moses, hey, tell the people to go fight against Pharaoh. Tell the people to go win their own freedom, right? Never one time were they told to do that. When they're at the Red Sea, they're not told, get ready, the battle is coming, you better fight for your own freedom, right? They're not told that that command is not given, and it's very, very purposeful. But what did God say? Let's look at our first reference verse this morning. This is Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. What did God say? Here's what he said. It says, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. That whole picture, the deliverance from bondage in Egypt, the deliverance over Pharaoh and over all of his Egyptian army, that is a picture of our salvation. That is a picture of God fighting and gaining victory over an enemy that we could not have fought against and won. He had to fight that battle. So this is a picture of our salvation, deliverance, redemption, our freedom in Christ, and it's unmistakable God fought that battle. God did that great work. When we take that into the New Testament, Jesus went to a cross to fight the battle for us, to fight it and win. He fought for the salvation of his people and he gained it. That is why it is called a gift of God's grace. God didn't say, all right, you better fight here. You better earn your salvation. That is not what the gospel preaches. We are saved by God's grace. It's a gift so no one can boast. That's the picture of what is going, that's a picture of God delivering his people out of Egypt. He did it. He fought for them. He did everything. He did the work. All they needed to do was stand still and watch and see the salvation that God was going to deliver for them. And as we, we read our Bibles, we pray and we praise God. We are sitting there standing, watching, and remembering sin defeated because Jesus died on a cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that through faith in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin defeated. Thank you, Jesus. The slave master Satan, his house plundered, defeated. Why? Because Jesus lived the life we couldn't and died the death we deserved. Then Jesus goes to the grave, is buried in a tomb, But on that third day, he rises again. What happens? Death defeated. What were we doing? Did we need to aid Jesus in any of that? No. We stood still and watched. We praise him for his great and awesome, glorious 
perfect, finished work. Just exactly like we see the people here. But here is now where we transition into Exodus chapter 17. Our victory is in Christ. We are free now. We are no longer slaves. But Christians, that doesn't mean we're to fall into another snare and become slaves again. That can happen. We can do that. God didn't deliver his people from the Egyptians and all of that circumstance, so they fall into the snare of Amalek, so they become slaves in this situation all over again, which means what? They have to fight to remain free. When Jesus comes and breaks all the chains and sets us free, we are free indeed. But now the point is, we want to remain that way. How? By abiding in Christ, learning how to wage the spiritual war and winning. It's exactly what is being set up right here. That's what Exodus 17 is all about. God is going to teach his people. This is just the first of many battles that are going to come for you as I lead you into my promised land. A picture of us walking in faith with Jesus towards our promised land, which is heaven, by the way. But along the way, there's a whole lot of battles, a whole lot of little skirmishes that, listen, we can be victorious. We can stand. We can overcome because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So understand, we all want to know how. So that's what God's going to teach his people That's what God's going to show us. That's what this chapter is all about. We'll talk more about this spiritual battle as we continue through our study. But at this point, I just want you to point out those two main differences. It's an external battle this time. And it's one that the people have to engage in. They have to fight the right way. So now back to those other questions. Who is Amalek? Why are they attacking Israel? What is going on here? Well, remember a man named Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau, these two fraternal twins. Remember that they were womb-mates at one time. And remember that God told their mother, Rebecca that those two children were actually two nations. And she could feel inside her womb that they were warring against each other. She said, it feels like two nations are battling against me. God says, that's right, because they're are. They started fighting in the womb. And Esau is going to have some descendants. And Esau, one of his descendants here is Amalek. Amalek is a descendant of Esau. And the children of Israel here, they're descendants. They're the children, the grandchildren of Israel. Jacob's name changed to Israel. These are all of his children. So here we're just seeing the next round in the battle between these two nations. But I want us to remember about Esau specifically and what Amalek represents. Esau is what we call a man of the flesh. He's a carnal man. He's somebody who lives for the temporary things. He lives for every passing pleasure that comes to his stomach or his mouth or his body, right? He's the one who's who's just sensual. If it feels good in the moment, it must be good. He doesn't give thought to eternity. He doesn't give thought to the bigger picture. And how do we know all that? Because remember what Esau does? Esau is actually the firstborn. And in this culture, It was the firstborn that had the spiritual heritage go along with it. In this culture, the firstborn gets the double blessing. The firstborn gets to be the priest of the family. The firstborn gets to carry that blessing to their next generation. What did Esau think about all that? He could have cared less. The Bible tells us he despised it. That when the time came, he's hungry, and he says, I'd rather have a bowl of soup than the spiritual blessing, than my own birthright. And so he trades it to his younger brother Jacob over that. And that may not sound like a huge deal to you, but that's a huge deal. He says, all that stuff is worthless to me. He's saying, I'd rather have some food now to satisfy my hunger now than a relationship with God, which would satisfy me forever. Because he's short-sighted. He's, he's a man of the flesh. He represents our flesh. These human desires, our human nature, the tendency to live for the now instead of bigger picture, eternity, storing up treasures in heaven. And so that's what we're seeing. Amalek and Israel here is showing us the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The battle that wages in between us. Just like Rebecca was saying, it feels like there's a battle raging inside of me. Guys, it's because there is. 
The same is true for us. Paul in Romans 7 says, there's a battle raging inside of me. The things I want to do, I'm not doing. But the things I don't want to do, I'm doing. He says, what's going to happen here? It's a spiritual battle. And that is, that is what we're talking about here in a spiritual sense, but we're seeing it exemplified here in the text. But Esau's the guy who represents our flesh, which, which shows us that great lesson now screams louder, but later lasts longer. Just for a bowl of soup, he's going he's gonna to fix his now, and he's going to destroy his later. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to give in to the desires of the flesh. We want to be led by the Spirit. And that's what Paul says. If you are led by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's, that's Galatians chapter 5. But I want you to catch that. If you are led by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. We sometimes, we twist that around and we say, well, if I don't fulfill the desires of the flesh, then I'm going to be led by the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. That's called legalism. He says, do the first thing right. Be led by the Spirit. And now as you're led by His Spirit, you don't want to be fulfilling the desires of the flesh. You have the power to win the battle against Amalek. So that's what's being set up here. This battle in the womb between Esau and Jacob is perpetuating all the way here between Amalek and all these these descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel here. So they come to fight, and they're fighting because they're nomads. Amalek is nomads. They're traveling around. They're raiders. And what they see is they see Rephidim actually looks like a very desirable place now. Rephidim actually is the oasis with all that water. And they think, you know, we'd really like this for ourselves. So what do they want to do? They're trying to take it from the nation of Israel. But look at how they do it. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25, our next reference verse. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18 says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. God is is reminding the people in Deuteronomy 25, saying, hey, do you remember what Amalek did to you? Because I remember, God says, oh, I remember what he did to you. Speaking of this moment, they attack the rear ranks. They attack without provocation or warning. They attack those who are weary and tired, the stragglers. And listen, God cares about those who are weary and tired, the stragglers. That's not okay. In fact, this whole thing to attack God's people like this shows one thing from God's perspective. They don't fear me. They don't fear me. And that's a big deal because we've been talking. Our series before, Who is God, was a series called Awe. And it was all about what God was demonstrating, manifesting his awesome power over all the false gods and idols in Egypt, over Pharaoh and all of his Egyptian army, to the point where all the other nations were going to be able to say, have you heard what God did to Egypt? And many of those nations would say their hearts melted in fear because the God of Israel is the one true God. He is awesome and powerful and mighty and we don't stand a chance against him. But Amalek doesn't feel that way, does he? He's attacking them because he doesn't fear the Lord. And I want you to know that there, there's the attacks that come against us from people. Not, not even people. Forget I said people because the, the battle we wage is not against flesh and blood. But it's spiritual forces and hosts. I'll, I'll show you the verse a little bit later. But they don't fear the Lord. They're in opposition to the Lord. And they're seeking to attack his people the same way Amalek is doing it here. So God is going to show his people now how are they going to fight with Amalek. Take a look at this. This is verse 9. Look at what happens next. Exodus 17 verse 9 says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. 
And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So please tune in for this. Here's the part, like the crux of our study this morning. There's always a crux at some point, right? There's always like the peak, right? Here it is. This is what we want to grasp. Look at what Moses does. Now we've seen historically in every other trial, in every instance up until this point, the people come to Moses and start complaining. That doesn't happen. They come and they bring news. Amalek is attacking. Now Moses, every other time, cries out to the Lord. We've made a very significant point of pointing out Moses cries out to the Lord. Now he's going to do that again. Even though it's not mentioned, it's absolutely consistent with his character. He's going to go up the mountain to do that. But I want you to see what he sets up here. The first thing he says is we need to send some people out to protect the stragglers who are being killed by Amalek. So he's going to send some people to the battle line. But notice what Moses is doing. He's, he knows, i got to go up to the mountain and pray. But also, we need to go to the battle lines and fight. And I can't be at two places at once. So he says, Joshua, choose us some men and go and fight. And I want you to see that. Here's the first mention of Joshua, one of my favorite men in the Bible. He's standing by the ready, available to go and serve the Lord through this capacity. So here he is. And we see he's been here the entire time. He's born a slave in Egypt. He's gone through all that bondage. And now he's here, but he's ready. And I don't know about you, I've always kind of wondered, how how did Joshua, of all the two, two plus million people. How is Joshua the one that that Moses calls? Now listen, the answer is probably because he's been faithful, because God has been raising him up. He's shown diligence and faithfulness in the little things. But I wonder, what if if it was just this? What if Moses hears that the, the Amalekites are attacking the people and he says, oh no, what if Moses says, God, you are our salvation. We need you. I mean, what if he says that? And he's saying, Yeshua, we need you. He's saying, God is salvation. What if, what if Joshua was just walking by. He's like, hey, that's my name. That's what Joshua means. God is salvation. He's saying, hey, um, excuse me, Moses, did you call me? Okay, that's probably not how it happened. That's, that's probably not how it happened. But what if, right? It's a cool idea because what is God going to show his people through this? I am salvation. I'm still salvation. I've saved you. I'm able to keep saving you and delivering you from the battles that you face. So Joshua is the only name that we're mentioned that's going to the battle to fight because nobody else gets the glory for this victory, but God, who is our salvation. It's just another reminder. Who is God? God is our salvation. He's God, He's their salvation right here. So Joshua goes to the battle lines. He's going to fight with the sword. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But then Moses, he's going to go up on the mountain and he's going to pray. And notice he's going to take the rod of God in his hand. The rod of God has been the instrument that God has used to show his power through Moses. We saw it last week when he struck the rock. We saw it all throughout the the encounters with Pharaoh in Egypt. He's got the rod. We saw it at the Red Sea. So it's not that the rod is anything significant in and of itself, but it's God's power on display when Moses has the rod. And I'm just pointing it out to say, Moses knows when he goes up on this mountain, he is seeking the power of God for victory. He is going up there to pray independence that the only way victory is going to happen on this day is going to be by God's intervention. Please let there be no mistake about that. It's no great military strategy. It is the power and dependence upon the Lord God himself bringing the victory about this situation. And we're going to see that even more clearly in a few minutes. But I want us to point out that they have to engage in this battle. Something has to be done. Sitting there while the people are just being picked off is not, that is not the plan. It's not what God is going to allow. Action has to happen. You have to engage in this spiritual battle that is around you. Now, what we're going to really see, though, is the greatest weapon that is on display in this chapter. What what gets the greater volume of the text is the great weapon that is not carnal, but it's mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds. And the greatest weapon that we're seeing is the power of prayer. Moses knows that it's going to be God's intervention, God's power. That's what they need. And so he's going up the mountain to pray. And notice that he doesn't go there by himself. 
He's going to bring his, his brother, Aaron, who's going to be the high priest. He's going to be another man named Hur. And we don't know a lot about him, but we know his name means light. I mean, are you going to go there in a priestly capacity and seek the light of God to do what? Shine out the darkness, bring victory from what is trying to encroach upon you. But if we just take a step back and we say, how important do you think prayer was to Moses? We say, I kind of have my viewpoints about prayer. Let's set all those aside for a second and say, how did Moses view prayer? By looking at this situation, do you think Moses was tempted to take the rod of God to the front lines and the trenches to battle there? I bet, I, I bet he was. I bet he was very tempted. But he believes even more in the power of prayer to go up on this mountain and seek the Lord. That's what he's showing us here. This is the, the power of waging the war and winning. It has to be won in the throne of grace with the Lord through prayer before it's going to be won on the battlefield with the sword. That is exactly what is being said here. He's going to go up and pray. And every time Moses is praying with hands raised, with the rod of God in the air, Joshua is going to be victorious. But when he starts to get tired and puts his hands down, now I'm not going to depend upon the Lord for this moment. I'm tired and to rest. They start losing. And he's from a vantage point where he's able to see this happening. I wonder if Joshua's turning around saying, don't stop praying. Don't you know how contingent our victory is upon your prayer? Do you you hear that statement I just made? Can you think about that? Do you know how contingent my victory is in the battle upon somebody else's prayer? Upon somebody praying for the victory? That's what Joshua was able to see and connect. And this whole account's going to be repeated in his hearing later so he wouldn't have forgotten. But let me just ask you a question. What if Moses just didn't feel prayer was important in this instant and says, hey, let's all get swords and sticks. Let's all go to the battle lines. It would not it would not stand to reason they would have lost this battle against the Amalekites. Isn't that how many times you're like, ah, oh, I don't have time to pray. I'm just going to run to the battle line. And we, we wonder why that didn't go so well. Here's our example. Here's the precedent of how to wage the spiritual war and win. It has to be won first in prayer. If it's won in prayer, it's won on the field. It's won with the sword. But Moses is not going to do that. But I want you to see what he's teaching the people, what, what this example is. We've got a few more reference verses that I want you to see as we're trying to learn how to wage the war and win or be reminded how to wage the war and win. Look at what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses three through five. It says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How powerful is that? He says the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're not physical, they're not fleshly, but what he's given to us, they're called mighty in God. They're mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds, for the the overcoming of Amaleks. That's what he's telling us here. But notice the weapons aren't listed here, so we still say, well, what are the weapons? Well, Paul tells us what they are in Ephesians chapter six. All these verses are in your study guide, but I'm putting them on the screen because I want you to see them. This is Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Check that part. Whose might? His might. Our power is not in our own strength. It's in his strength. But he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Do you see that? You will be able to stand if you armor up the way God is telling us to armor up. But he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not people, other human beings but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, having done all that, then stand. But Paul's simply saying there is a battle. 
There's going to be an attack that's going to come at you from the outside. The flesh, temptation, sin, disobedience, the the offer to get off track, attacks from the outside represented by the Amalekites here, and they're going to come at you too unexpectedly, unprovoked. And we need to armor up so that we can stand. But now he's going to give us the armor. A few more verses to look at. Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. Paul says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Not one dart gets past the shield of faith. And then the helmet of salvation the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Check this out. Here's our armor. And many of these pieces, they're defense pieces where the belt of truth holds everything together. The breastplate of righteousness guards our heart in Christ Jesus. The helmet of salvation guards our mind. The shield of faith quenches all the fiery darts. But then we've got two offensive weapons, two. We have the sword of the spirit and we have prayer. Prayer. Please don't think that the armor of God stops with the sword. The whole thing comes together by praying always. Prayer is an offensive weapon. Where would I get an idea like that? Where would Paul get an idea like that? From Exodus chapter 17. Joshua wielding the sword. Moses engaging in prayer. How do we wage the spiritual war and win? Exactly like is being shown, prescribed, demonstrating for us in the very text that we're reading. We need to know our swords. We need to know the word of God to be able to contend in that battle. And we need to be people of prayer. We need to be those who are engaging in the battle first in prayer. God is able to to equip us on how to use the sword effectively. So we're not just lopping off ears like Peter did, but we're rightly dividing. We're calculatedly using so we can remain in the freedom by which Christ has died to set us free. That's what's being demonstrated here. It's, It's incredible, but that's the example and the prescription for us. Joshua goes to the battle lines. Moses goes up the mountain. Moses has the rod of God in his hands. Whenever his hands are raised in independence, crying out to the Lord, the people are winning. But whenever his arms start to get tired and fall down, the people start losing. But picture this whole scene and and now try to relate it to the way it works in our lives. Think about that. When our hands are raised, when we're living in dependence upon the Lord, walking by the Spirit, trusting Him for every step, walking by faith, it seems like, wow, these battles are just, I'm just winning everything. Thank you, Jesus. But then when our hands hang low and our feeble knees are knocking and we feel weak, we succumb to almost everything. And that's not a coincidence. That's a spiritual posturing of our hearts. It's what's being demonstrated here. I love this picture because it shows us an incredible dependence upon the Lord. And it also shows us dependence upon other Christians, other people around us. I think about Moses here who, who his heart is willing, but the flesh is weak, just like Jesus said. Moses, he sees what's going on. He would love to keep his hands up all day long, but you know what? He's not physically able to do it. But that's why he didn't come alone. He's got Aaron and her on each side. They see what's going on. They pull up a stone to set Moses on so they can hold his hands up for him. I think that is incredibly beautiful. Think of all the pieces that are now involved to engage in this battle so they can wage the spiritual warfare and win. You've got Joshua out there interceding for the stragglers who are being picked off by the Amalekites. You've got Moses who's there interceding for Joshua who's interceding for the stragglers who are being picked off by the Amalekites. And now you've got Aaron and Hur who are interceding for Moses who's interceding for Joshua who's interceding for the stragglers. You know what we're, you know what we're starting to see here? The church. 
We're starting to see what the body of Christ looks like. Somebody's wielding the sword. Somebody needs to be in prayer. Somebody needs to be praying for the prayers. Somebody needs to be stepping in for those who are widowed or orphaned or in the trials or in the struggles, feeling like they're weary and tired, straggling behind. That's what the church does. We're seeing the whole picture and everything come together because what does an external trial do? It brings us together. Let me bring you back to one word in verse nine. Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men. Choose us. He said, Moses, Joshua, go choose you some men. It's not a you kind of battle. It's an us. The church is an us. The body of Christ is an us. There's togetherness. There's unity. And we want to strive to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. We didn't create it. It was gifted to us. But we strive to maintain it by not losing sight of the us. You pull out any one of these pieces and the spiritual war may get waged, but it won't be one. But God works all these different pieces out so we can see it and we can feel, how do I connect in these things? Where's my role? We all have a role in the church. We all have a place or it's not an us. But let's talk about some spiritual lessons here. There are several spiritual lessons that we can see. Number one is just a lesson on dependence. There's a complete and utter dependence upon the Lord here. We see that he's ultimately the one who's going to bring victory. And it's so much so that Moses says there's, there's nothing else I am even willing to do than pray right now because that's what has to be done, a picture of incredible dependence. But then I want you to think about this. He's depending upon the Lord wholly, entirely, but he's also depending upon Joshua. Joshua, I need you to be faithful. And I'm not going to micromanage everything that you're doing. I need you to be faithful before the Lord, your God. Go get some men for us and go fight that battle. He trusts him. And then he's going to depend upon Aaron and her. He chose those two guys wise as well. I'm going to need your help. I don't even know how I'm going to need your help yet, but I know I'm not going to go up on this mountain alone. Think about this, where two or more are gathered in my name. There I am, the Lord says. Moses, Aaron, and her gathered on the mountain, the Lord's presence with them. But he's dependent upon them. And I was thinking about us, and I want just to know, Christian, you, please, you, be dependable. Be someone who's dependable. Be someone that another person can say, hey, I need you to do this. I need some help here. And you be the person that says, I will be faithful. I can be counted on. Listen, Christians, please, even and especially when it's prayer, I need you to pray for me. Hey, will you pray for this situation? I have a difficult trial. I have a difficult appointment. Will you pray for me? Christians, I'm asking you. I'm begging you. Be dependable. Pray for that person. Look at how important it was for Moses to have Aaron and her pray for him, lift up his hands. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have had victory if that didn't happen. You are the Aaron and the her for the person who needs the prayer like Moses. Take that role faithfully and be dependable. Put a, put a notice on your phone, write a note in your car, put it on the dashboard, whatever you've got to do, pray for that person who asked you for prayer. Be dependable. It's a lesson on dependence. Looking at this from the other an, other angle, this is a lesson on humility. Think about Moses. He has to humble himself to ask three different people to help him in this trial. Every other trial that they ever faced, the water from the rock, the, the bitter waters, even the Red Sea, it was him and the Lord. It was Moses being a mediator between God and the people, and it was God doing it, but not this one. Moses needed three other people to aid him so they could be victorious in the situation. You know what? Moses was humble enough to ask. Joshua, I need your help. Aaron, her, I need your help. Friends, do you need help? Will you be humble enough to ask? Will you be humble enough to allow the blessing of someone coming alongside of you to fight the battle with you? Because you're not alone. If this battle's affecting you and you're a part of the body, your problem is an us problem. Your problem is affecting all of us because if one member hurts, the entire body hurts. It's an us thing. So humble yourself to the point where you will ask for help. You will ask for prayer and you will watch the body be the body and come alongside you. And just like we're reading here, wage the war and win. That's what God is showing us here. 
There's another lesson that we can see here, and it's tied into what we call the victorious Christian life. As if there's any other Christian life, right? It should be the Christian life is a victorious Christian life, but it's completely tied into the one that we're exalting. We need to see that. When again, hands are raised in exaltation of the Lord. When you raise your hands, it's a complete surrender. It's saying, Lord God, you, you have it all. I, I have nothing left to offer. My hands are open. My hands are raised. I'm surrendering to you. All honor and glory and praise belong to you. And when you live a life postured like that, now all of a sudden you're experiencing victory in every sense of the word, in every sense of the areas that you have. I'm not saying you're not going to have battles. I'm not saying you're not going to have struggles. But you can be in victory as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He truly is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. And as we bow our lives and surrender to him, we start to see the victories as it looks like from his perspective. It's predicated upon the same dependence. Listen, it may not come quickly. This battle here, the prayer on the mountain, the very real battle in prayer, the prayer at the front lines, the very real battle with the sword, it lasts all day long until the sun goes down. It's a long trial. And yet God is going to bring the victory as they battle that entire time. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. After all this is, is over, the Lord says, I want, I want to make sure you do a couple things for me, Moses. Write all this down as a memorial. The first time we have in the scripture where we're told to write this down, where Moses is told to write down these events, God does not want it to be forgotten what he did here, how to wage a spiritual battle and win. Especially knowing this is just the first of many conquests, many battles that the children of Israel are going to face as they enter into the promised land. Listen, as they lay hold of everything God has promised for them. If we want to lay hold of, grab onto, experience everything God has for us, we need to learn how to wage the spiritual battle and win. And we just have. We've just seen what to do here. But write it down. And then he says, and I want you to know, I want to blot out from remembrance Amalek from under heaven, which means there's going to be a judgment that is going to fall upon them and this nation is going to be utterly blotted out. This will happen later, many years later, but God is making sure this decree, this determination has been met for the way that Amalek did not fear the Lord and came at his people this way in a way of cowardice by attacking their rear ranks. So just know that that's what God says. Verse 15 says, and Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Moses, this this is spectacular when you think about this. Moses makes an altar. That's the first time we see him do that. Moses says, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi. God is victorious and his name is going to be lifted high. So who's, who is God? What does this section teach you? Who is God? The Lord is our banner. The Lord is our victory. But I want you to think about this. This whole thing is pretty amazing. I mean, Moses has seen has seen so many miracles, it would take some time to count them all up. Moses has seen so many miracles. But not after any of those did he make an altar, did he make a banner and say, the Lord is my banner, right? He didn't do any of those. Why this one? Well, I think it's because this is the first time God has allowed his people to be used by him and they can all experience the victory together. This is the first time where they didn't stand and watch God do all the work. That is glorious. We needed God to do all the work to set us free, to overcome sin and the bondage that we were under. Nobody could have done that. We need Jesus. But now walking in freedom and experience the glory that the Lord is our banner is tapping into the resources that he provides, all things pertaining to life and godliness given to us in Christ and experiencing he's willing to also use me 
to fight battles for other people, to bring victory over enemies. That is incredible. And now as a result of this, even more so are you worthy to be worshipped. Even more so are you our banner and our victory. There's something connected to the fact that they experience participation coming alongside with God on mission. And it beats their heart. And some of you, you know that all of us Christians, we should know that. The joy it is to serve the Lord. It is scary at times and it totally makes me nervous. But when you're done and you are faithful and obedient and God always is, there's this joy that says, you know what? The Lord is my banner. I want to do this all the time because that's what he does. He's faithful. So that's why you're seeing this happen right here. The Lord is our banner. I've got one more reference first I want to show you because I love the way it kind of captures this as well. Song of Solomon 2.4. Speaking of the Lord is our banner. It says, he brought me to the banqueting house. God has invited us all Christians to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He has invited us to a banqueting house. But it says, his banner over me was love. The Lord is my banner and his banner over me is love. I love you. I loved you to the point that I died for you. I sent my son to die for you. I rose again because I love you. The banner over us is love. That is why we do what we do. That is our motivation for everything. For God so loved us that we love him in return and all the people around us. Think about how beautiful, picture that in your head. The Lord is my banner and the banner over me is love. That's who Jesus is. That's who we're being conformed into the image of his son to be like that. Think about just walking around this week. Everywhere you go, someone says, man, that person has a banner over their head and the banner says love, love. I love you in Jesus' name. I love you the way Christ loved me. I'm gonna lay my life down with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Picture that and walk in that. That's what God wants to do for us. As we start to settle this out and, and, and land the plane here and prepare our hearts for communion, I just, I wanna come back to this idea of spiritual warfare. And I want to come back and just look at what we just saw in in Exodus chapter 17 as a whole. If we try to zoom out and we look at all 16 of these verses, I know we did the first half last week and, and this half this week, but if we zoom out, let's just see what we've all seen. They show up in Rephidim. They show up in a place of rest and refreshment. And we talk, that's a picture. Jesus is our rest. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're saved. We're at rest. We're at peace with the Lord. We're no longer laboring to try and keep the law, which we couldn't do. We're set free. We're at rest. All right? But then what happens? We need to be filled with his living water. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so we can walk out this Christian life. And that's what happens next. God is going to strike the rock. Remember, Christ is that rock and out of him is going to flow living water. Jesus connects all the dots and says, all who come to me who are weary and heavy laden, that's the wrong verse, all who will come to me and thirst out of their innermost being will flow torrents of living water. Speaking of the spirit, which God is going to give to every believer. So we're in Christ now. Now we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? Amalek comes. The flesh rises up and seeks to take back the territory that Jesus won by his precious blood. And it needs to be defeated. That's the spiritual warfare that I'm talking about. We're made new in Christ. We're made spiritually alive in Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ. And we need to crucify the flesh daily so we don't give Amalek background in our hearts. This same exact description that we're seeing in Exodus chapter 17, that's the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, by the way. He's going to start his public ministry. He's going to go into the waters of baptism. Now, he doesn't need to repent of anything, but it's to to symbolize John's ministry and validate what is going on. But if you remember why he's in the waters of baptism, he comes up and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove and remains. And then what happens next? He gets out of the water, but then he's going to go into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. First comes the dove, then comes the devil. First comes the living water, it Rephidim, then comes Amalek. That's the battle that we need to wage and win. Oftentimes it's just from those sinful pleasures, those sinful desires that this world comes at us with. The things that tempt us like they tempted Esau, but the temptation in and of itself is not a sin. The temptation is a battle cry to raise your hands up to the Lord, to pick up your sword, engage in the battle, and 
win. So connect all of those things together and apply them to your life. Apply them to your situation that you're in right now. God is faithful. And we have this entire account to teach us that lesson. Who is God? He is our banner. He is the most dependable person. We can count on him. He's trustworthy and faithful. And I wish I could say, and all God's people say amen, and you would say amen, but I hope you're saying that in your house right now. But praise God for his faithfulness.